Just a word of warning before our episode for today, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander listeners should know that this episode contains the names of people who have passed away. Just, just, just words. words. Just words. Finding the line between free speech and protecting the vulnerable. You can't say or do anything anymore, otherwise you'll be dragged off to the law courts. Why is this the pressing issue of our time? Andrew Bolt held me up as the poster child for the white Aborigines, so somebody that didn't look Aboriginal but identified as such so that they could gain political and career clout. Meet the white face of a new black race, the political Aborigine. Meet, say, acclaimed St Kilda artist Bindi Cole, who was raised by her English-Jewish mother yet calls herself Aboriginal but white. She rarely saw her part Aboriginal father and could, in truth, join any one of several ethnic groups, but chose Aboriginal, insisting on racial identity you could not guess from her features. I felt harassed and vilified and humiliated and intimidated, and those things looked like me not wanting to leave the house. Uh, me at times just feeling overwhelmingly emotional for long periods of times of time. It looks like uh, business opportunities, artistic opportunities falling away. It looks like uh, people, friends uh, leaving my world too. So I, I really lost professional standing and personal standing through those articles. Shall I go on? Not yet convinced that there is a whole new fashion in academia, the arts and professional activism to identify as Aboriginal? Not yet convinced that for many of these fair Aborigines, the choice to be Aboriginal can seem almost arbitrary and intensely political, given how many of their ancestors are in fact Caucasian. We get Daniel Browning, host of ABC Radio's Away, program for Aborigines, insisting he's Aboriginal when he looks more like one of his West Indian ancestors and could just as correctly claim to be a South Sea Islander, English, Australian or who cares? I was offended, I was humiliated and insulted by the very cursory way he referred to my, my heritage. It's not a joke. People's background is not a joke. What I always struggle with is that we chose to be black for the financial benefit, but why we must have rocks in our heads because we choose to be black. What's wrong with us? Isn't that racist? I want to be black, I am black, and there's no changing that fact. If I tried to pretend to be white, I would be pulled down by very many members of my family. Hello, you're listening to Just Words, a 2SER podcast where we tell stories about 18C, which of course is the bit of our Racial Discrimination Act that bans offending, insulting, intimidating and humiliating people because of their race. Now today we've got a story about lazy journalism and kind of where your cultural identity comes from. Is it more than just skin deep? 
I'm Nick Healy, and I'm here with producer Emma Lancaster. Hi, Nick. So you just heard some of the conservative columnist Andrew Bolt's words from an article he wrote back in 2009. And these words, along with some others, are what landed him in court and arguably ignited the debate about Section 18C that continues to this day. And I think it's pretty clear from what we heard from Daniel and Bindi that it did have a real effect on the people he was talking about. Yeah, they were part of the Etoc and Bolt case, and we'll be hearing more of their stories soon. This racial discrimination case actually took years, and even though there was a decisive ruling and a symbolic victory, it's unclear if there were any real winners. And so Bolt's a key player in this case then? Yeah, he was the defendant. Bolt is the most prolific conservative columnist in Australia, and he also has his own TV show. Hello, I'm Andrew Bolt, and this is The Bolt Report. It's safe to say that Andrew Bolt has a lot of reach and influence. Yeah, he counts ex-prime ministers and cardinals among his friends. And so Etoc and Bolt is the high-profile case that really shot Section 18C into the headlines and, I guess, opened what we could call a new front in the culture wars? Yep, that's the one. Bolt had an infamous run-in with our racial discrimination laws back in 2009 after he wrote about nine, what he called, fair-skinned Aboriginals. He accused these people of using their race for political and career clout. And I've got to say, before this case went to court in 2011, I don't think anyone would have really heard of Section 18C outside of a law school. Yeah, only 15 claims brought by Indigenous Australians under 18C have ever reached the courts in the last 20 years. But if you've been reading The Australian or listening to talkback radio, you could be led to believe that our freedom of speech is being strangled to death by this section of the Racial Discrimination Act. And that's what Andrew Bolt believes, right? This is exactly what he thinks. Imagine Bolt as this lone soldier in a one-man culture war against 18C, which he says has silenced him. Here he is talking to an ABC reporter in 2011 before the judgment was handed down in his case. Do you have anything that you can say about your thinking when you were talking about white Aborigines? There is a lot I could say, but I can't say it now. Bolt sees 18C as an attack on his right to speak freely about race and Aboriginal identity, and in fact, all races. It is particularly a restriction on the freedom of all Australians to discuss multiculturalism and how people identify themselves. That was Bolt speaking outside the law courts back in 2011 after the judgment had been handed down. Yeah, and, you know, we did try to speak to him about his case and how he feels about the law now, almost six years on for this episode. At first, he did agree to talk with us, but when he found out I was speaking to a plaintiff in the case, well, Bolt bolted. I got this email from him. No, I am not free under the law to say exactly what I think and so will not take part. And so we're not going to be hearing from Andrew here. No, but we will be exploring the conflicting opinions about what the Bolt matter means to free speech and racial equality in Australia. And to be honest, I think the debate we are having at the moment about 18C has gone off track. Despite being one of the most talked about pieces of legislation on the books, it's a very misunderstood law. I think the debate we're having about it now has actually transcended what the law really does. Which is to make it unlawful to racially abuse someone. Yeah, the removal of 18C has now somehow become a rallying cry for free speech warriors like Bolt. It's also become an argument for those who feel that political correctness has gone too far. But will removing or weakening 18C open the door to hate speech? 
And I guess, is your right to offend ever greater than someone else's right, you know, not to be racially vilified? Won't removing 18C facilitate vilification by bigots? Well, Mr President, people do have a right to be bigots, you know. In a free country, people do have rights to say things that other people find offensive or insulting or bigoted. Sticks and stones will break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Right now, if you simply offend or insult someone on the grounds of race, you can be sued and banned. I know. If that's what we want our society to be, then we can keep the law how it is. But if we want people to be free and actually enjoy life, instead of wondering about everything they say, waiting for a letter to go into a star chamber, as some call it, and be shaken down for money, then, then we keep 18C the way it is. This is a really misunderstood law. It's not just about someone's hurt feelings. If you read the whole law and look at the way judges interpret it, it's pretty clear that you need to have caused profound and serious negative effects in order for the law to apply. So when people say, you know, 18C can be used to silence people for a mere insult, that's not accurate. Yeah, and what's often forgotten is that 18C actually comes as a set, or that's how I like to think of it. Uh, A set? What do you mean? Well, 18C is followed immediately by this other piece of law. It's called 18D. And it says that 18C does not apply to anything said or done reasonably and in good faith for works of art, scientific debate, fair comment and fair reporting on a matter of public interest. So what you're saying is that all of these things are actually exempt from being in breach of Section 18C. Yeah, and it covers things like art and journalism, provided that something has been done reasonably and in good faith. I think I see where we're going with this. If you take the time to read the 57,000-word judgment, Bolt didn't lose the case because of the opinion he held. It was more to do with his relationship with the truth and some lousy journalism. The Federal Court has found a newspaper columnist guilty of breaching the Racial Discrimination Act over two articles written in 2009. Andrew Bolt had penned two articles and some blog posts. The articles in question were titled... So hip to be black. And... White fellas in the black. Bolt had written the articles for his employer, the Herald and Weekly Times, and in them he implied that light-skinned people who identified as Aboriginal were doing so for personal gain. The case was brought by nine fair-skinned Aborigines. Bolt was sued in the federal court by high-profile Aboriginal people he'd taken aim at, including former ATSIC chairman Jeff Clark, academic professor Larissa Barrent, activist Pat Etock, artist Bindi Cole, author Anita Heiss, the now Queensland MP Leanne Enoch, native title expert Graeme Atkinson, academic Wayne Atkinson, and lawyer Mark McMillan. So the key plaintiff in this case was Pat Etock, who has since sadly passed away. And even though this 18C case has filled countless column inches, few people know how it actually started. Unbeknown to many people, the case actually started because a group of Aboriginal law students in Melbourne read the articles and felt deeply disturbed by them because they were not dark, they were fair-skinned, and the import of the articles was that fair-skinned Aboriginals were cashing in on their Aboriginality to feather their own nests, and they felt really quite humiliated and intimidated by it. This is Ron Merkel. 
Well, I was the Queen's counsel who appeared for the plaintiffs in the Andrew Bolt case. So they were the ones that initially went to lawyers to get advice on whether the articles might be in breach of the Race Discrimination Act. When the lawyers came to me and started looking at a case, we looked at a second group of Aboriginal persons who were the people who were actually the subject of the articles. And it was decided that a plaintiff in the case should be one of the people who were actually allegedly vilified in the article. And that's how Pat Etock came forward and said, I'll be the plaintiff. But objectively, the article and its effect and consequences had to be considered by reference to the people who were the subject of the articles, but also fair-skinned Aboriginal people who were the ones who were complaining about being vilified by the articles. Look, I'm almost afraid to ask, but what did Bolt actually say about these people? How about I let Bolt tell you? Or at least his voice actor. I certainly don't accuse them of opportunism, even if full-blood Aborigines may wonder how such fair people can claim to be one of them and take black jobs. I'm saying only that this self-identification as Aboriginal strikes me as self-obsessed and driven more by politics than by any racial reality. Andrew Bolt was making the argument that some people were choosing to identify themselves as Aboriginal in order to gain benefits or status when their lighter skin colour meant they had other options open to them. Okay, so the, the starting point to understanding Etoch and Bolt is to understand what were the messages conveyed by the art. Uh, Andrew Bolt sought to characterise those articles as making a good faith, if somewhat robust contribution to the discussion of an important public issue. But the plaintiff saw the matter quite differently. And in their view, the articles accused them of making a very deliberate choice to identify as Aboriginal and to do so for personal gain. That was Professor Adrian Stone. Basically, there were two very different interpretations of the articles that were submitted to the judge. The nine Aboriginal plaintiffs saw Bolt's articles as accusing them of making a deliberate choice to identify as Aboriginal for personal gain. And to them, this criticism was not only an offensive attack on the genuineness of their own personal Aboriginal identity, but the identity of other Aboriginal people with light skin. And what was Bolt's side of the whole thing? Well, Bolt gave evidence that he was highlighting what he called an undesirable social trend – Those who did not look Aboriginal enough for him, those who were not dark enough or who were of mixed heritage, in his mind should not be entitled to claim their Aboriginal identity or the benefits targeted at Aboriginal communities. The argument that Bolt and his legal team made was that these articles were not about disparaging Aboriginal people. Instead, these articles were about achieving a less racially divided society. Wait, what? I'll let Andrew Bolt explain. All my life I've really been against racism and again I've just been asking for us to treat each other and judge each other as individuals. So others would say why are you highlighting race if that was your purpose? All I've said all my life is that we should look beyond race. One of the nine Aboriginal plaintiffs whose racial identity Bolt took aim at was Bindi Cole, a Melbourne-based artist. Surprisingly, Bindi thinks Bolt's claims for a colourblind society is authentic. I think he has a genuine belief in humanity and uh, humanity without racial divide. And that's a really good idea at its core, of course. I believe in that too. And so he kind of wants to 
highlight perhaps what he perceives as racial identity that doesn't really make sense to him. But what he doesn't understand is that for people, we all want to belong. We really desire to belong at the core of our being. And so if you're part of a community and that you have been for a very long time, whether or not it makes sense that you're a part of that community doesn't matter. You're connected to it because you identify with it and you belong. Your sense of belonging is tied up. It's inherent in it. On one hand, I, I kind of agree with this notion of humanity without race, but on another hand, I'm not sure that it really... Uh, works. Bindi was the first person identified in Bolt's article, It's So Hip to be Black, and the only one of the eight living plaintiffs that agreed to speak to me on the record for this series. The other plaintiffs I contacted didn't want to invite the 18C debate back into their lives, especially given the hundreds and thousands of words the media had dedicated to this law in recent months. I flew down to Melbourne and I asked her if she knew what she was in for when she first filed the 18C case. Look, to be honest, at the time, I didn't really understand how politicised this law was, nor did I understand how it took a moral and philosophical higher ground. I was just interested in having the opportunity to be vindicated, and I was not interested in money, in, in a return for it. And so I don't think that I fully understood the ramifications of using that law. I now do, in hindsight, I see that it was not just an easy, simple law. It was something way bigger and way deeper. It's important to point out here that Bindi and the other plaintiffs did have an alternative legal option to 18C. They could have each brought an individual defamation case against Bolt instead of pursuing action under the RDA. I asked Professor Adrian Stone to speculate on how that may have played out. It seems very likely that they would have succeeded in defamation law because the material is undoubtedly defamatory and the defences in 18D are very closely modelled on the defences in defamation law. So it it seems unlikely that Mr Bolt would have been able to rely on the defences in in defamation law. I don't know why, or at least I wouldn't want to speak for uh, the plaintiffs and the other complainants in this case, Uh, but let me just observe the following, that... The Racial Discrimination Act and defamation law do very different things. Defamation law defends your personal reputation. The Racial Discrimination Act is designed to address the harm that is caused to a group of which the complainant is a member. The one reason you might prefer to use the Racial Discrimination Act is that what you're interested in is having the harm to your group addressed rather than the personal harm to yourself. So Bindi and the other Aboriginal plaintiffs who brought the claim against Bolt made a clear choice, I guess, by lodging a case under 18C instead of using defamation law. They were not only calling out Bolt for themselves, but for all light-skinned Aboriginal people who felt offended, insulted, humiliated or intimidated by his articles. I'll let Bindi explain. I think what was important about the case is that it was tested against how a broad community might feel. So it wasn't necessarily my individual offence or intimidation or humiliation or the nine of us, but it was how people from that broader community of fair-skinned Aboriginals would receive those articles and would they be intimidated and humiliated? Would they be afraid to identify as Aboriginal because they're fair-skinned? 
There were 18 people identified in Bolt's articles, but only nine people put their names down to be plaintiffs. Daniel Browning is an Aboriginal journalist who was named in the same article as Bindi, but he chose not to become a plaintiff in the case. Well, initially when I was approached to consider being part of the action in the federal court, uh, I was absolutely on board. I wanted him, I wanted some redress for these comments, which I thought were unfair. But, you know, I had received advice from people whom I respected, whose advice was to sit it out and to, you know, like, don't amplify these comments, don't give them oxygen. But, you know, I was very much on board until I think the first meeting, and this is, this is fairly private information, but I think, you know, so much water has, has gone under the bridge. I, I was present at the first meeting with the lawyers who would later go on to prosecute this case. And, you know, I was really keen, you know, to see what we could do and to see what kind of satisfaction we could get from from the legal system. But I, I stepped back because I felt that there were other people who were who were vilified for whom this was a very serious it was a serious matter for me but I felt it was more serious for them and the case was strong without me and as a journalist and you know Bolt is a columnist a person who works in the media I felt that if there was going to be any kind of redress that perhaps it might happen there. I asked Daniel how he felt when he first saw his identity dissected in Bolt's column. It made me angry. It made me... It took me back to this whole kind of thing where, you know, Aboriginal people have to account for who they are and they're not allowed to just be. So, yeah, it's something that we we have to live with and something we do live with and have lived with. But I do think there is something wrong with a society that says that Aboriginal people have to give an account, or they have to explain themselves, or to be defined according to some kind of blood quantum rule, that's, uh, you know, that kind of thinking surely, uh, surely went out a long, long time ago. Now, this might seem like a strange question. This is Just Words producer Anthony Dockrell. But do you regret not being part of that, that particular action? Well, I was part of it. But, but you know what I mean, like if being one of the nine... Applicants. I'm just not one of the... Yeah, I'm just not one of the nine claimants. And I, I, didn't, I didn't go through the kind of trauma and the, you know, the suffering. And I know there are going to be a lot of people listening to this going, oh, agony, you know, suffering. Well, <laughs> you ask any of them how they feel, how it feels to be... Uh, to, to be vilified in public by someone like Andrew Bolt, who has enormous influence. Frightening. So what did the judge end up deciding? Well, the case was heard by Justice Mordecai Bromberg. He's known as Morty, and he actually played AFL for St Kilda in his younger years before becoming a judge. He heard both sides of the case, and then he went away and wrote a very long judgment, explaining his decision. I caught up with Queen's counsel, Ron Merkel. He represented Bindi and the others in their case against Bolt. Look, Justice Bromberg's judgment was very long, very carefully considered and very comprehensive. 
He analysed the articles in great detail and he decided that they did constitute racial vilification as defined, that is, they did vilify in the sense of offend, insult, intimidate and humiliate. All four legs were found to have been made out, if I remember correctly, on the grounds of race of fair-skinned Aboriginal people. He then carefully considered each of the legs of 18D and found that the defences that were put forward were not made out. The uh, Sun Herald and Andrew Bolt both raised by way of defence that the law was invalid because it breached or offended the requirements of the implied freedom of political communication. But because of a binding full court decision, they had to accept that a single judge couldn't find that it was invalid under the constitution. And then the judge made orders prohibiting republication by Andrew Bolt and the Herald Sun of those articles because they're in breach of Section 18C and the Section 18D fair comment, reasonable debate, a defence had failed. Right, so Bolt had breached 18C. Why did his defence under 18D fail? I mean, we talked before about how it's got so many protections built into it. So the exemption of a fair comment defence from 18D was out of the question, as the judge found Bolt had not written the comments in good faith. Here's an extract of what Justice Bromberg said. In my view, Mr Bolt was intent on arguing a case. It would have been highly inconvenient to the case for which Mr Bolt was arguing for him to set out facts demonstrating that the individuals whom he wrote about had been raised with an Aboriginal identity and enculturated as Aboriginal people. Aside from the factual errors, the judge also took aim at Bolt's tone, language and what he called gratuitous asides. The lack of care and diligence is demonstrated by the inclusion in the newspaper articles of the untruthful facts and the distortion of the truth which I have identified, together with the derisive tone, the provocative and inflammatory language, and the inclusion of gratuitous asides. So Bolt made some mistakes, and in order to rely on a fair comment defence in 18D, I guess the fair comment has to be based on facts? Let me give you an example of where Bolt got his facts wrong. In one of the articles, Bolt described Professor Larissa Berent, a Harvard Law graduate, as, well, I'll let Andrew Bolt's voiceover explain. Larissa Berent has also worked as a professional Aborigine, despite looking almost as German as her father. Which people are yours, exactly, mein Liebchen? Wow. Uh, I think I'm starting to understand the gratuitous asides issue. Yeah, so this was in fact wrong. Larissa's father was not German. He is Aboriginal, born of an Englishman. But it's important to point out here that Justice Bromberg said, of course, it's not against the law to make a mistake, but in Bolt's case, all the mistakes seem to be heading in the same direction. I asked Bindi how she felt when the judgment came down. So it had been a long time coming and we weren't sure when the judgment was exactly going to be handed down and I was travelling at the time, but I was still very uh, invested in what was happening. And so for me, personally, I felt vindicated, absolutely, but also a sense of anybody from the Aboriginal community who is fair-skinned, who might come from a family with multiple skin colours, who may be feeling a little uh, intimidated to identify as Aboriginal, they don't need to feel that. Their identity is absolutely valid. And so I think that's a good legacy for the next generation in terms of the Aboriginal community. In the judgment summary, Justice Bromberg was careful to point out the harm Bolt's articles could cause fair-skinned Aboriginals, and in particular young Aboriginal people. He said that it was likely they would be intimidated. 
I've had lots of young people come up to me and thank me for doing it. Um, at the time when the articles were out, I had lots of people coming up to me going, why are they writing this? And so I, there's definitely a huge flow-on effect to the broader community, in particular young people who so often struggle with their identity. And everybody goes through a process of reconciling who they are and being Aboriginal brings attention all of its own, let alone not really understanding where you belong, being told you're one thing, but then not really looking like it and all of these kinds of things. So there's a real sense of victory, I think, for young Aboriginal people who are fair-skinned. Aboriginal identity is a complex and contentious issue, even within the Aboriginal community. And it's no wonder, from the 1800s up until late 1950s, Australia had laws that referred to blood quotum to define Aboriginality, where rights, benefits and even places an Aboriginal person could go were dictated by the degree of Aboriginal blood they had. And this was based on nothing more than an observation of skin colour. Sadly, this obsession with using skin colour to determine Aboriginal identity continues. I don't think I ever met an Aboriginal boy while I was at school that was that was as white as me. And um, and that was probably why I was too scared at the time to identify. This is Jake Gablonski, a 22-year-old Wiradjuri man who grew up in the Northern Territory. He could easily be one of the young Aboriginal people that Justice Bromberg wrote about in the Etoch and Bolt case. Justice Bromberg argued that beyond the hurt and insult brought by Andrew Bolt's articles, his words could actually intimidate someone like Jake. People don't don't pick it straight up. Um, and that's fair enough. I get that, that I, I don't really look it. But then when I, I do tell them, I guess it, it sets them back a bit. Or I get questioned a lot about percentage and, and things like that, or, or if I even should identify that Brisbane, considering I do have light skin. So hold on a sec. Um, so people are actually asking you what percentage you are indigenous? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy to think that they do, but they, they actually do and it, I don't I don't even answer it. I'm just like a percentage doesn't even come into it at all. Um it's in my blood, it's in my it's in my spirit. It's I can't really I can't really put a percentage forward. Like my grandmother is Aboriginal and uh, my mum's obviously half, so yeah, it's it's pretty crazy to think people directly ask that, but they do. What do people say when they question your identity? So they say, oh, but you're white, or you can't have much in you, or the good one is, but you don't look an Aboriginal. And the fact that um, you don't look Aboriginal, it's such a, it, it sort of, it takes your identity away from you in one, in one sentence. As I've grown older, I've definitely um, been able to deal with it a lot better, but it's um it's definitely brought me back a lot of times that that just that one sentence you yeah, look Aboriginal. That one sentence for Jake holds the same message as Bolt's articles did for the nine plaintiffs. You're not Aboriginal because you don't look Aboriginal. But who are we to say? For Jake, his Aboriginality runs deep. Well, I think it's your your connection to your family, your people, your you know it's in your spirit. It's in your DNA. Like you know, you can't you can't deny someone of their DNA. I've been working really hard to learn a lot of my own family's traditions and things like that. So that's what it means to me. I, it's a deep. It's such a deep thing, deep down inside of of anyone who is Aboriginal.
the judgment came down, Andrew Bolt claimed to have been gagged by 18C. Here he is speaking outside the law courts in September 2011. This is a terrible day for free speech in this country. Can I at least have my free speech now? It is particularly a restriction on the freedom of all Australians to discuss multiculturalism and how people identify themselves. Bolt's been on a free speech crusade ever since, and what Bolt is saying here isn't actually true. If you want to, you can still Google Bolt's articles in question. They're meant to appear with a notice that says they're in breach of 18C, but not all of the articles on the internet have this. So is 18C really such a huge infringement on freedom of speech? I asked Professor Adrian Stone. The idea that Mr Bolt's been silenced by Section 18C seems to me to be completely wrong. The, the actual material is still available and in any event he's completely free to continue having a discussion on those issues that he raised so long as he takes the time to uh, get his facts right and probably just rein back from some of the most you know, gratuitous forms of insult. Something Andrew Bolt never seems to point out is that Justice Bromberg included one very important paragraph in his judgment, tucked all the way at the end. The judge said that even though Bolt and his employer were found to have contravened 18C, it wasn't the subject matter of challenging racial identity that got them in trouble. For the judge, the issue lay with how the subject matter was dealt with. So you're saying that if Bolt had actually got his facts right... Well, he potentially could have relied on a good faith defence. Professor Adrian Stone. I don't want to quibble, but I want to resist the idea that you either uphold freedom of expression or you protect people against offence, insult, humiliation and intimidation. So let's just start by saying freedom of speech is always subject to limits, everywhere. And the only interesting question is where you draw the line... And one way to understand Etoch and Balkan, a view, a view which I favour, is that it, it represents a reasonable accommodation of competing concerns. One is that we should have really as much free speech as we can have, but we also should protect people from very significant forms of harm. When I visited Bindi in her sprawling suburban home just a few weeks ago, I wanted to know where she drew the line when it came to free speech. As an artist, I really value the notion of freedom of speech. I hold it dearly because I want to be able to talk and speak into things that are taboo, things that are controversial. I'm particularly interested as an artist of where tensions lie and bringing those out. And I think that's what a lot of artists and creatives and writers do. We are able to identify the tensions and bring them to the surface, which makes people really uncomfortable. And in a way, isn't this what Bolt had been doing on his blogs and in his columns? He found a fault line in our society and rightly or wrongly had been making an argument bringing this issue to the surface, despite it making some people uncomfortable. I do believe people like Bolt have an absolute right to have conversations in the public arena about race and identity and opportunism. And I, as an artist, have a right to make work that to some would be offensive. I told Bindi how Bolt had refused to talk to me, as he said he was not free to say what he wanted to about their case. He claims that his speech has been limited and that he's not able to talk about the things that he wants to talk about. How do you respond to that? In a way... His speech has been limited, but only 
in the way that it needs, that his journalistic expression needs to step up to a higher standard. He could continue to talk about these controversial topics such as skin colour and opportunism, no problems, as long as he does good research. And how do you feel about Andrew Bolt now? I don't feel any ill will towards him. I don't carry any resentments or or anger towards him at all. Uh, I I just, I don't even know what I think about him anymore. I just don't think about him, (laughs) maybe, (laughs) you know? Yeah. Despite Bindi moving on from her 18C case with Andrew Bolt, the flames are still being fanned on the 18C culture war. And the heat of the legislation is not set to die down anytime soon. A parliamentary inquiry on 18C made its final report on the infamous law at the end of February, but the committee stopped short of making any clear recommendations on changing 18C. Instead, they put forward a shopping list of options, ranging from leaving the section unchanged to replacing the words offend, insult and humiliate with the word harass. This puts Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull in a tight spot, as without consensus, it's now going to be up to him to decide whether to make any changes. Sounds like we can expect the uh, argy-bargy over the Racial Discrimination Act to make a return to both the Cabinet and the Coalition Party room. That's for sure. I asked Bindi, after going through one of the most public 18C cases, if she would ever agree to changes in the law. I am all for a reform of the law and a review of the processes of the Human Rights Commission. I, as somebody who really stands by freedom of speech would not have no issue with the words offend and insult being removed. I still think that the law would be used properly and would be available to people who really genuinely need it. The law was never established for people who have minor hurts, hurt feelings. It was always about actions that have severe consequences uh, to a broad community. And so I think removing those words or changing them to other words does not bother me in the slightest. What bothers me is when both sides of politics use this law for their own political agenda. What Bindi was saying to me at first seemed controversial. How could someone who'd gone through a successful 18C case, who had been offended, insulted, humiliated and intimidated, and then vindicated in federal court for feeling all of these things, want to change the law so others could not access it like she had? I think remove the words offend and insult. I I think the law needs to raise the bar slightly so that cases, recent cases that we've seen that have been thrown out of court don't even get that far. Uh, I think you could easily replace the words with harass or vilify. Those things would, would absolutely work. And to keep 18D in place, which is a protection of freedom of speech where you can say controversial things as long as they are in good faith. And so I have no issues whatsoever with the reformation of the law. So perhaps Bindi is right. Well, if you dig a little deeper, you'll find that judges have already interpreted 18C cases to capture what they call profound and serious effects, not to be likened to mere slights. So you can't take the words insult and offend on face value. So do you think the law has really found a middle ground between vilification and freedom of speech and maybe doesn't need to be changed? Well, Daniel Browning questions whose interests are being served when it comes to watering down our race laws. 18C for me in the Racial Discrimination Act is actually about 
In, in many ways, it's, it's this kind of omnibus. It's like a, a watershed for people who have been racially vilified. For anyone who is not from, who's not white, who, who's not used to the protection of the law. You know, if you're from a minority group, you're used to being shafted by the law and to being mistreated by the law. Aboriginal people still die in custody. You know, our record in the, in the legal system, in the justice system, justice in inverted commas, across very many strata of, of society, we're not used to winning. But the Racial Discrimination Act, I think, should be preserved. It was, it's actually a kind of a... It was written in a golden age where, you know, multiculturalism was just the way we thought, was a national ethos. Well, politically it was. And I think a lot of lawmakers realise that in order for us to have the kind of society that we want, occasionally the lawmakers have to stand up and be really visionary rather than just represent the worst of what people actually think. Next time on Just Words, we explore an 18C case that involves an Aboriginal activist, a comedian and a mud crab. I'm your host, Nick Healy. I'll be back next week with more stories from Just Words. Just Words was created by Anthony Dockerall. This episode produced by Emma Lancaster, who's also our executive producer. Miles Martignoni is our supervising producer, and he also did sound design. Original theme music composed by Joe Koning. Research and assistance by Miles Herbert, Joe Koning, Taylor Fuller and Shane Anderson. Marketing communication support by Andy Huang. This podcast was made by 2SER Radio 107.3. Oversight for this series by 2SER Station Manager Melanie Wisnell. If you like what you just heard and you want 2SER to continue making original podcasts, donate today or become a 2SER supporter. Just head to 2SER.com. And uh, don't forget to leave us a rating or review on iTunes. It'll help other people find just words. 